Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Hi, guys. Recording for the very first time in the brand new Dukakis Benson studio. Tell us a bit about it, Luke. Uh, It's otherwise known as my new apartment. I moved here a few days ago. As we said in last week's premium episode, uh, rather swankier than the last (laughs) apartment. Uh, No bugs. No bugs, no dog shit in the halls. Uh, (laughs) More fitting our new status as podcast royalty, but... You know, I do worry that we're departing from our earlier status as champions of the common man. (laughs) We've got a beautiful view uh, overlooking downtown Toronto. Unironically, I think a really good view of the city. A good view of the city, but too bad about the city. I mean, look at these buildings. (laughs) What a mess. You know, it was amazing looking for a place because, you know, you realize how much of the city if you want to live downtown anyway and i'm sure this is true for you know most cities these days it is just these depressing towers of glass i looked at a number of buildings all of which were more or less identical mm-hmm. um all very nice in a kind of antiseptic way uh this one i liked rather more and um you know it's a good location so i'm, I'm happy with the the move I think um, you've already put a bit of your stamp on it, and and that's nice. <laughs> it's got I've got the uh, the bookshelves, which uh, you know how the certain objects just kind of follow you around, and you kind of forget where they came from, or you never really knew. Mm-hmm. Well, the bookshelves I discovered recently, they're all kind of slightly different sizes, which makes no sense. There's four of them, and I just this isn't that interesting, but you know I discovered that uh, it's because when my parents first moved to Toronto in the early 1980s. They had a really weirdly shaped apartment and they had these shelves made to fit the walls and the windows. So that's why they're all slightly different sizes. And I had this confirmed for me recently where my dad was visiting and we walked by the house uh, and you can see exactly where the shelves would fit. So that's a little powerful, powerful, yeah. symbolic little I know the folks my life. like it when they get a little bit of autobiographical <laughs> content. Yeah, so. on the Patreons, we've been getting into that a little bit. And um, I just want to say to the fan base, I mean, if we do anything and you don't like it, uh, tough because we're no I'm just yeah kidding. no I I actually <laughs> think that though no I was gonna say you know I mean let us know so far you know we've done you know the odd thing that's a little bit outside the wheelhouse I mean frankly we can't just keep things anchored I mean just like we couldn't only do Michael Moore and Michael Moore spinoff films we had to expand the universe a little bit we're continuing to do that um, but I mean if at any point it starts to get like the Simpsons season ten. <laughs> Let us know. But we've been talking about kind of autobiographical stuff. We did our Tommy Wiseau episode two weeks ago, which, like so many things, I had to talk Will into doing a begrudged, uh, intransigent. It being Halloween, we decided to do a uh, Michael and us spooktacular. (laughs) Very scary. And um, Shocktober. One thing we thought about doing was uh, John Carpenter's Halloween. I thought that'd be a little too on the nose. It's also just kind of a good movie, and I don't really know what we would say about it. Well, yeah, this is the problem. Like, we've lately been kind of 
getting together the and dangerous about, territory like, of like is is there a way we could things just, that interest we us could just watch something we could enjoy and and somehow jerry-rig a podcast around it well but, i've said this before but you know i've said this on the podcast before but you know will and i you know we were friends before we were podcasters and what we used to do was we would just get together and watch things that we liked or things we thought we might enjoy yeah and that all changed when we masochistically decided to start a novelty podcast yeah. where we watched all of the Michael Moore films and then all of the straight to DVD uh, bargain bin conservative spinoff films and people kind of enjoyed it. So we kept doing it and we found out you can monetize your friendship. <laughs> so, you know, why not? <laughs> it would seem irresponsible not to. <laughs> But for our spooktacular, we eventually landed on uh, a movie that helped America heal after 9-11, Donnie Darko. Do you see the fear, people? This boy is scared to death of the truth. Son, it breaks my heart to say this, but I believe you are a very troubled and confused young man. I believe you are searching for the answers in all the wrong places. You're right, actually. I am pretty, I'm, I'm pretty troubled and I'm, I'm pretty confused, but I... And I'm afraid, really, really afraid, really afraid. But I, I, I think you're fucking Antichrist. So this was a movie that came out. Was it September, October of one of those months? And just before we we get to it, I want to take you back to those days after 9-11. This was inspired because we looked up, up some of the reviews of the film and on the Wikipedia article, there was a comment about, you know, the film was a bit of a flop upon initial release and it subsequently gained popularity and a kind of a, you know, modest cult status. And there was a comment about how um, many audiences post 9-11 didn't respond well to the film's dark themes and particularly the jet engine plot, which we'll talk about later. And I think that's a bit of a stretch. I mean, this was a movie that was just sort of dumped into theaters uh, without a lot of advertising. I don't think audiences rejected it so much as they didn't even know it existed. I think what probably happened was whoever the distributor was realized, oh, we have a movie that has a plane crash in it. Let's not spend any money marketing this right now. I don't know. There's plenty of movies with dark themes on uh, the list of the September 14th to 18th weekend in 2001. Yeah, you Dark may... movies like Rush Hour 2. Yeah, you may be wondering what helped America heal in, in the days immediately following 9-11. Well, on September 14th, the number one movie at the box office was the Keanu Reeves baseball hit Hardball. Was that the one about gambling? Oh, no, that's Moneyball. That's Moneyball. That What's came... Hardball? Hardball is Keanu Reeves coaches a little league team. <laughs> Uh, never seen that uh well you know nine million dollars worth of people escaped <laughs> beg, CNN beg for to differ <laughs> yeah. so this is the first weekend after 9-11 and it's just kind of interesting because there were a lot of movies that came out that summer <laughs> rush hour two that are that are lingering around there and you see a title like rush hour two or rat race or the curse of the jade american Scorpion, american pie Two, tim burton's planet of the apes Rockstar with mark Wahlberg. oh man these were the movies that just came out Right before everything changed. And, you know, I think it may be a bit of a stretch to do a Michael and us on Rat Race. I was but... just going to say, can we please talk about Rat Race? Because I've for the longest time had this fantasy about like, what if we did a non-canonical episode on Rat Race? Just any excuse to, 
you know, see the great music of Smash Mouth performed live again. John Cleese's finest role. And, you know, <laughs> Rat Race is symbolic to me of just like the, the end of history. It's like just before everything, just before everything collapsed, here was, here was this movie. It's a race, I will win. Yeah. I also often like to think of like, if they made Rat Race now, who would be the kind of B-list stars in it? I'm uh, surprised there hasn't been like a Rat Race sequel. Yeah, or a franchise reboot in in some way. A gritty a gritty remake. So yeah, in the in the weeks immediately following 9/11, the top movies, the number one movies at the box office were first Hardball, then Don't Say a Word with Michael Douglas, which beat Zoolander. <laughs> you skipped to the next weekend and Zoolander is number 2. Zoolander's number 2, and when Zoolander came out, that was very much hyped as this is the movie that's going to help you forget 9/11. Seriously? It's very seriously. I don't remember this. Uh, in fact, Another interesting fact, they recalled all of the prints of Zoolander, all 2,000 prints, so that they digitally removed the World Trade Center, which really? was in one of the in the background of one of the scenes. Uh, and in fact, many movies right after 9-11 were delayed by like months because of 9-11. So there was the Tim Allen comedy, Big Trouble, which is all about, I think, hijacking a plane or, mm-hmm. or bombing something. Or there's the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, Collateral, Collateral Damage. Damage. Yeah. So there was just a cut here because we tried to give you this fact. Luke tried to say it, but he couldn't say it without laughing. And That's not true. And it's the fact that the Master of Disguise starring Dana Carvey, you know, the famous Turtle Club scene. I'm not laughing. I'm crying. <laughs> I mean, it's very sad. I mean, remember that day. They shot the famous Turtle Club scene on 9-11 and everyone on the set observed a moment of silence. And this is actually true. It's the top fact in the movie's IMDb trivia. And just knowing that Dana Carvey, when he found out about 9-11, was dressed as the turtle guy. And then... I like to think that there was a moment on the set of that movie when when somebody said, geez, should should we stop filming today? And Dana Carvey probably said, no, we can't the, let the terrorists win. <laughs> the world needs laughter. <laughs> the world needs laughter. Well, am I not turtly enough for the turtle club? Am I not turtly enough for the turtle club? But anyway, in the, in the midst of all this, Donnie Darko was released. And another reason that we chose Donnie Darko was because it is a very political film. Yeah, the first line in Donnie Darko is Maggie Gyllenhaal saying, I'm voting for Dukakis at the dinner table. And obviously we're very pro-Dukakis Benson on this uh, podcast. We learn in this movie, by the way, that a linguist, I believe it was J.R.R. Tolkien, so someone should tell Drew Barrymore that, um, once said that cellar door was the most aesthetically pleasing phrase in the English language. I beg to differ. I think Dukakis would have won <laughs> is uh, is better. And in the alternate timeline that Donnie Darko sets up, I like to think that Dukakis did win. Well, I'll never forgive Dukakis for letting Willie Horton out. <laughs> Donnie Darko, as I'm sure you know, is a very Bush-era phenomenon. Mm-hmm. It is set in the Reagan era, of course, and it feels like a movie that could have been made three years later. You know, sort of in the 2004 election cycle. Feels when, like a mid-2000s film, yeah, like, it's an election movie, among other things. It's an election movie. It's all about, you know, the religious right and kind of uh, prudish philistines yeah heavy-handed moralism yeah of course it's the story of donnie darko a mixed-up teen in a lily white suburb who has a a hard life being you know stifled by his somewhat conservative parents and even more conservative neighborhood 
He, of course, has a rabbit friend, uh, just like in the film Harvey. But his the rabbit friend may or may not be a different facet of his personality. We'll get into this later. I think we should say just outright, I think both of us thought the film had some virtues upon reappraisal, um, but that it is quite flawed. And um, one of the problems with it is that it's one of those films that is filled with clues and kind of parallels from scene to scene. Stuff that you're supposed to, on the fifth viewing, kind of piece together. And you've got a treasure map that you're following. It's it's supposedly an elaborate puzzle, but it's not really... it ends up, I think, being so convoluted that it kind of undermines its own strengths. And, and we'll get into that. So the film, as Will was saying, centers on Donnie Darko, who is a troubled teen. He's seeing a psychiatrist who hypnotizes him. And he recounts these strange visions of Frank, who is a man in a bunny costume, who tells him to do things. Uh, which include these increasingly violent acts of kind of small-scale terrorism on the neighborhood, Mm -hmm. um, smashing a water vein at the school, burning down a house eventually. We learn that, you know, at one point before the film started, uh, when Donnie was younger, you know, he's had these problems for some time. And so this is the picture the film paints at the beginning. And there are a number of supporting characters. There's Patrick Swayze as kind of a low-level Tony Robbins style. A sort of self-help con man who's somewhere between a televangelist and I guess a more secular, you know, snake oil salesman. Who we later find out is a pedophile. Mm-hmm. There's Drew Barrymore as a principled English teacher whose efforts to teach Graham Greene to the students are stifled by the moralist factions. Yeah. Notably one character in particular who is kind of a shrill caricature of a born-again Christian. Yeah, and of a sort of, I guess, Reagan-era moralist. I think this is one of the things the film captures really well. Um, You know, this is sort of what, in practice, the backlash to the 1960s looked like. Um, This is the other side of the culture wars that we always hear are so threatening and disruptive. You know, it's uh, school teachers basically advocating book burning because some facts are just too dangerous to expose Mm -hmm. to children, even if they're fiction. I found this character a little tiresome, actually. I mean, she's she's a little on the nose. Yeah, such an on the nose caricature. And this movie owes an enormous debt to David Lynch. And I think it sort of captures the dreamy tone of his movies fairly well. But I don't find it anywhere near as unnerving an experience as something like Blue Velvet because I never feel implicated in the movie. I think we're kind of encouraged to identify with Donnie Darko or the other outsider characters. And we're encouraged to laugh at or score in these fuddy-duddies and these fundamentalist characters Uh, And that's not all that interesting to me. Something like Blue Velvet implicates its audience in a more disturbing and, I think, intellectually rewarding way. Well, in Donnie Darko, there's a pretty clear dichotomy between, as you put it, you know, the outsider characters and the ones that I guess are symbolic of conformity. So the outsider characters, apart from Donnie, include Gretchen, played by Jenna Malone. They include Drew Barrymore, who's the idealistic school teacher. 
They include Charita Chen, who's a student who gets bullied, played by Jolene Purdy, and uh, I guess it's suggested has a crush on Donnie. Mm -hmm. They include the Maggie Gyllenhaal character, who is voting for Dukakis, so she's my favorite character. And she's kind of uh, getting ready to go to Harvard, um, as is kind of the expected course. Um, And yeah, then there are all these kind of unsympathetic you know, Reagan era caricatures. And to compare it with Blue Velvet, I mean, the thing that makes Blue Velvet so interesting is that it's all about showing the coexistence and even the kind of symbiotic nature of, you know, on the one hand, the darkest realms of the human soul, and on the other, kind of the, you know, idyllic, naive, antiseptic, suburban, small town Mm -hmm. America, you know. And in Blue Velvet, and, you know, maybe it's unfair to compare this to literally one of the best movies of all time. (laughs) It's very unfair. But, I mean, since this movie, I think, invites comparison, I'm going to make it. In Blue Velvet, no one scene is either completely funny or completely horrifying. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's the case with this movie. Mm -hmm. Now, as their coach, I was the obvious choice to chaperone them on their trip. But But now you can't go. Yes. Hmm. Now, believe me, of all the other mothers, I would never dream of asking you, but none of the other mothers are available to go. I don't know, Kitty. It's a bad weekend. Eddie's in New York. Rose, I don't know if you realize what an opportunity this is for our daughters. This has been a dream of Samantha's and and all of ours for a long time. I made her lead dancer. Sometimes I doubt your commitment to Sparkle Motion. So Donnie meets Gretchen, who is a student who's had to move with her mom there have been a number of uh, horrifying events in her family. Her stepdad attacked her mom, and they've had to relocate and change their names. And so she and Donnie uh, start dating. Donnie continues to go to therapy, and his episodes grow worse and worse. And the film kind of sets up this countdown because he's told by an old lady who fanatically checks the mail every day, even though there is no mail told something near the beginning of the film by this old lady who whispers something in his ear. Um, and then this countdown begins to when everything's going to end. Donnie later discovers that the old lady has written a book about the philosophy of time travel. And in, I think, some of the movie's weaker moments, he interrogates his school science teacher uh, about the theory of time travel, who eventually says... Uh, I'm not going to be able to continue this conversation, you know, because mm-hmm. it's too dark and the, it's, the knowledge is too dangerous. Now, throughout the movie is loaded with Easter eggs, like Donnie walks through the kitchen and Frank the Bunny's face is... Is the uh, pumpkin, the you, Halloween pumpkin. Yeah, and you see that and you think, oh, uh, what dots should I connect this to? And I question how rewarding it would really be or another one that i noticed this time was there are these scenes where donnie is looking in the mirror mm-hmm. and the image will change and it's frank in the mirror and the idea is that he's looking at frank through the mirror and there's a scene earlier where they're watching a self-help video that the prudish school teacher is showing them and there were people talking about looking in the water and seeing their the reflection of their ego or something mm-hmm. so the film is full of these little 
clues that are, I guess, are kind of fun to find, but I, I don't really think they lead you anywhere. If you are kind of an ambitious cinephile early on, you're a precocious cinephile, you start to understand that movies aren't necessarily just about literally what they're about. Right. And that they have things like symbolism in them. And you think, oh, if I can figure out what this symbolically means, then the movie will kind of click into focus for me. And it's like, yeah, movie as activity kit. Mm-hmm. And I think a key part in one's you know, film-going evolution is coming to terms with the fact that a movie isn't necessarily better if it suddenly clicks into focus. Mm-hmm. Like, a movie isn't a problem to be solved. Mm-hmm. So in the final leg of the movie, I guess the last 20 or 30 minutes, things come to a head as, you know, the title card tells us that there are first, you know, mere days and then mere hours remaining to what we're not exactly sure But a distressed Gretchen arrives at a Halloween house party. Something has happened to her mom. Her mom has disappeared. Uh, So there's kind of violence and morbidity in the air. She and Donnie go upstairs and the implication is that they hook up. But then he has another vision. He goes over to the fridge to get some beer. And there's a a message on the fridge that says something like, uh, Frank was here, went to get beer or something. This sends him to a panic and he pulls Gretchen and two other kind of largely nameless friends who are in a number of scenes but don't really add much to the movie. Pulls them away from the party. They frantically bike to the old lady's house and go into the basement through the cellar door. There's another Easter egg. And in the basement are attacked by two bullies, one of whom is Seth Rogen, who have a number of uh, appearances in the film. Um, they're just always up to no good. And the film is, in in addition to being a horror movie and kind of a sci-fi movie, it is also just kind of a generic teen movie with the twist that the bullies are, I mean, they're not just bullies, like they hold knives to people's throats. So it's a little mm-hmm. darker. Um, that's where the, the teen movie element and the kind of horror element, you know, mix. And then there's sort of a bizarre scene outside of the house as a car drives up and the bullies eventually run away. But Gretchen, who's lying on the ground, is hit by the car. Two people then get out of the car and somebody dressed as a clown says, Frank, what did you do? And Frank, who is just a guy in a suit, pulls off the bunny mask and kind of yells at Donnie Darko, says, what were you two doing standing in the road? Uh, Donnie shoots him in the eye, which is another Easter egg because in an earlier scene, Donnie had, during a hallucination, stabbed Frank in the eye. This is another one of those kind of roads to nowhere the film gives you. Then things kind of reset at the end of the film because... All around me are familiar (laughs) faces, worn out places... Worn out faces. So then at the end of the movie... Right and early for... The, no, go ahead. <laughs> I mean, I deserved that, given the Turtle Club fiasco earlier. <laughs> so then at the end of the film, things kind of reset. Because the jet engine, which I guess I forgot to mention, earlier in the film hits the house and doesn't kill anyone, finally hits the house and kills Donnie. Where does it come from? We weren't sure... At the beginning of the film, we discover that it's from an airplane that Donnie's mother and sister are riding on. Somehow, they're not killed. We see them both at the end of the movie. It just kills Donnie, but Donnie has sacrificed his life for Gretchen, basically. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of about as much as the conclusion of the film gives us. (laughs) And then, of course, we're treated to the little 
epilogue where we see a number of the film's characters kind of looking sad in their private spaces, including Patrick Swayze, who's just weeping, uh, the self-confident, self-assured school teacher who, uh, you know, knows the difference between fear and love. Well, turns mm-hmm. out she's uh, hurting inside. We also see Frank, um, who's drawn a number of kind of bunny head images, and he kind of touches his eye um, mm-hmm. in another one of the little roads to know where the film gives you. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not really sure what the thesis is there. So this is a movie that I'm going to assume a lot of our listeners have seen because it was big when all of us who are around about this age were were coming of age. It and was coming kind of... into our political consciousness, <laughs> I think. And we knew who the enemies are. Well, this it... film radicalized me and I became a, 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 a lifelong Democrat. The enemies were your, your, your Republican parents, the Christian right. Mm-hmm. And the heroes, Walter Mondale, Michael Dukakis. Something the movie captures kind of well is sort of how dispiritingly small your world can be as a teenager and how small your horizons can be as a teenager. And so I think the filmmaker Richard Kelly knows that Michael Dukakis is not an inspiring figure. I mean, everyone knows that Michael Dukakis Mm. is not an inspiring figure. So the fact that he is proffered... We're never going to get him as a guest now. But the fact that he is proffered as this kind of transgressive gesture by characters in the movie is ironically funny. Suburbia is so crushing and crippling that the most transgressive thing you can do is to vote for Michael Dukakis. What does that remind you of? Yeah, telling your, you know, Republican grandfather, like, look, I'm voting for Kerry. So what is your relationship to this movie? Uh, If you have one. I saw it once in ninth grade at my school's lunchtime movie club. Your school had a lunchtime movie club? Oh, yes. Uh, Split into, I think, three three lunch hours. (laughs) So it was like, I mean, that's like lunchtime. The movie did not cast a spell, let's say. (laughs) We had lunchtime movies when I was in kind of grade two. And we'd like, we'd watch, you know, The Emperor's New Groove or whatever Mm -hmm. over, uh, over, you know, a few lunch hours. It sounds like that. Yeah, very much so. Did you have a relationship with this movie? Yeah, so this was kind of a big Halloween movie for me as a teenager, which is kind of why I wanted to revisit it, because I haven't seen it for 10 years or something. We've talked in the past about how we would both watch Bowling for Columbine with friends as kind of like a, a smart movie night. Yeah. And was that the case with this for you? Not quite. I mean, I think we did think of it as kind of a slightly indie art film. I don't think anyone thought it had any political heft to it, but mm-hmm. I yeah, I know what you mean. It, there was a feeling that this is smarter than your average Halloween party mm-hmm. movie. But this was a popular movie at my high school, and I think for a lot of us, maybe even me, it felt kind of transgressive, or it felt sort of edgy. It felt like you know, it it's fun as a high schooler to project yourself onto Donnie Darko and to have these kind of cultural enemies, mm-hmm. you know, the right wingers, the prudes, the religious right. And I don't know, I think that's, I think it's a not unhealthy part of one's political development. Mm-hmm. I think this film is more interesting if you subtract all of the sort of sci-fi elements and, and the time travel stuff. Because I think the more interesting parts of it really stand on their own, and they don't they don't need that. And it's much better if you watch it as 
uh, you know, a film about the clash of suburban conformism and kind of, uh, you know, teenage uh, rebellion and anti-conformism. It's still reductive, a little bit reductive then and perhaps a little bit too binary, but it's more interesting that way. I think when you get down the rabbit hole of trying to, you know, connect all the dots and, you know, what does it all mean? I mean, it's pretty unrewarding. I think what it's saying about society is not that useful for, like, a grown-up. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to say that. Like, I think the movie has some good points as a coming-of-age story and a, a depiction of the high school experience. But in its societal criticism, I think a movie like Blue Velvet is more useful because, you know, when Blue Velvet came out, people talked about it as if it was a binary movie, as if you see the white picket fence suburbia, but underneath mm-hmm. is, this, is this rotting decay. But... You know, the decay is present everywhere, and the white picket fence is present everywhere. It's disturbing how these two worlds cross-pollinate, and I think that's more useful for understanding the world we live in. Well, I actually have my own interpretation of this movie that, you know, I've told you about how I'm having a bit of a conservative turn. You know, I'm getting a little more conservative with age, and I actually think this is a pretty strong conservative film. Because I think Frank is supposed to represent big government. Um, you know, uh, early on in the film, we see a conversation be, uh, between the members of the family. And uh, the mother says, you know, do you really think Dukakis can turn around this country? And Maggie Gyllenhaal says, uh, you know, yes. And, and uh, the dad says, oh, yeah, well, <laughs> you know, big government. Yeah, just, uh, it'll take, uh, you know, 50 cents on the dollar of your taxes or whatever. And then along comes Frank, who just tells Donnie Darko to do things. And he has no choice but to obey. Mm-hmm. I think there's a pretty strong libertarian message there. Uh, this is a film about how in the absence of staunch family values, all you have is the tax man and the big government thug who's coming to tell you what to do. Well, I know that ever since you moved into the Dukakis Benson Studios <laughs> and, you know, you're paying a slightly heftier rent, you're more sympathetic to ideas like this. So, you know, tune in for the next few weeks of the podcast as, <laughs> as uh, we watch Luke get red pills. <laughs> By the way, I should also say that fans of Donnie Darko are well aware that filmmaker Richard Kelly's next movie was Southland Tales. Oh, and you were telling me about this, and it I sounds was surprised, bad, but interesting. I, I should do it. I was actually a little surprised you hadn't heard about it, because it is one of those like key Bush-era texts. Just an overflowing film that tries to encompass everything wrong with America mm-hmm. in the 2000s. And well, you were reading me the plot, and it sounds yeah. horribly convoluted. So, rest assured, you Southland Tales fans, that's coming on this podcast sooner or later. Once we have a night where we're willing to spend three hours watching <laughs> Southland Tales. We, hey, we've, we've put ourselves through a lot. Children waiting for the day they coming off of one of the worst weeks of the Trump era, I think, if not the worst. There's been so much 
terrible news this last week, including the largest anti-Semitic terrorist attack on American soil, the election of a new far-right government in Brazil. Just today, Trump is threatening an executive order to basically nullify the 14th Amendment. Uh, It's hard not to feel hopeless after a week like this. And, you know, we're coming up to the midterms and maybe the Democrats will be able to pull it off. But the Democratic Party is not in a good state right now. I mean, not so what, but I mean, it's not. I think back to the 2006 midterms, which were supposed to Mm -hmm. be this huge, you know, take that Bush. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the Democrats mobilized anti-war sentiment and they brought a lot of people out to the polls based on what was taken at the time by many people to be a more decisive repudiation of the Bush presidency than anything that the Democratic Party had been willing to offer even just a few years before when John Kerry had run for president. And, uh, you know, activists like Cindy Sheehan, who, uh, you know, helped uh, campaign for the Democrats, um, only to find that they would go on even uh, in the majority to continue to fund George Bush's wars, were disappointed. So, What gives me hope, um, you know, at least in the United States, is that uh, I do think it's a little different this time and that I think the opposition is more serious. I think having the possibility of an alternative, as slim a margin of hope as it often feels, I think the fact that there is something popular and mobilized to the left of kind of the Democratic leadership, uh, which has had some real successes and which is you know resist which is actually resisting uh the trump presidency every day and is not talking about his small hands and calling calling him the cheeto in chief that is something which perhaps separates and i hope separates this moment we're living in from uh you know 2006 i'm excited for the sensible centrist response to trump's birthright citizenship plan which is to uh, meet him halfway we'll end birthright citizenship for some immigrants but we'll keep it for the ones whose children's look like they might be good workers i remember when chuck schumer responded to donald trump by trying to outflank him on the wall by saying you know our policy is you know you want to build a a primitive wall that's like web point one point oh bullshit like we're for we're, we're the real party of border security or do you remember when they sent out that email that was saying like where is trump's wall he hasn't been able to build it yet which is like that old joke the food here is bad and such small portions <laughs> now watch this drive On the Patreons, we did our Tommy Wiseau episode last week, um, which... Two weeks ago. We did our Tommy Wiseau episode. <laughs> we did our... <laughs> oh, excuse me. Sometimes sometimes we have a blooper, and then in my brain I have a moment where I'm torn. Like, should we leave the blooper in, or should I tear, you know, tear through it? And I feel very conflicted, because sometimes I like the DIY feel. Yeah. Um... You know, I have two. Com- there, there are two sides of my head in the in the podcast. Much like there are, you know, I have Frank and then Donnie, and they're a con- constant. <laughs> anyway.
Um, I'm gonna try to get through this next bit with a straight face. You might have to re-edit. Um, I'm gonna try to do this like as deadpan as I can. Um, <laughs> you'll see why I'm laughing in a sec. Um, yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. Sorry, it's very unprofessional. Well, you know. Um, well, you know when they were making the hit. <laughs> Well, you know when they're making the hit. <laughs> Just say it, fuck's sake. <laughs> it's really hard. I'm gonna pull this bit off here. Wait, wait, see. <clears throat> this better be funny. No. <laughs> 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 You're just gonna like text your girlfriend, whatever, because yeah, yeah, yeah. my like you'll never. Luke is pulling some hijinks. It's it's quarter to twelve. Well, you know when they were making. <laughs> <laughs> what can I do to make this stop? I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm trying to do a bit about Master Disguise in the, in the Turbo Club. See? <laughs> and how they. they they observed a moment of silence, yeah. but it's too should you, funny. Should I, should I say it? Uh, if you can say it. Yeah, I will. And I keep thinking, because there's this... Kid, there's right. this okay, kid. okay, I know how to say this. 